I-94 on Lumpen Radio. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of I-94 here on Lumpen Radio. You're listening to WLPN 105.5 FM Chicago. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker, and as always, I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Good morning. And Mr. Michael Sack. Hey, Jamie. And today, we're thrilled to have the author of Sweet Home. It is a new collection. It's out on Picador. They sent it to us by airmail, which is really nice of them. Wow. Uh, And she's coming to us from Belfast. Wendy Erskine, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Lovely to be here. Really a pleasure. So Sweet Home uh, came out uh, last year, right? Earlier in the year, is that correct? And it's gotten a lot of great notice. I mean, I I was actually very impressed. Um, I think I first read about your book in the TLS. And uh, I made a note that we really wanted to get you on the show because I was really impressed to see a book about kind of the internal lives of working class women, which is something that is kind of rare. I mean, the only other person I can think of that really has explored that is Elena Ferrante. You know, it's something that people don't usually talk about, specifically working class people in general. You know, many novels are about people who uh, are either professors or or have a lot of money to do whatever the heck they want. So it was really nice actually to read something um, specifically actually about the class that I came from. Working class people in Britain uh, who own nail salons, who work at laundromats, you know what I mean? Uh, who eat mm-hmm. at chip shops. That, that's something that's very personally familiar to me uh, because I spent a lot of time growing up in Scotland. Um, can you talk a little bit about why you focused on this certain set of people uh, for this collection of stories? Certainly, yes. So, yeah, so these are these are 10 stories with a fairly kind of circumscribed locale, I suppose you would say. You know, everything would take place within the same, um, I don't know, a couple of streets, maybe within a sort of a mile radius or whatever. And I suppose what I what I wanted to do in a purely pragmatic, really practical way, um, I was wanting to write and I wasn't having I wasn't wanting to have to go away and do any research that I wasn't going to have to look at the political situation in some country or whatever. Um, and so that I I could just draw basically on my on my own um, environment, but also beyond that, I think uh, I think just what you're saying that there's an overrepresentation of some sorts of people in literature. I mean, you know, if if you look at it, there's so many stories about writers, there's so many stories about people who are involved in, you know, you know, life on campus, whatever. And I I I just I suppose um, I'm interested in a range of different people's stories. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily rule out those those sorts of people, um, people in you know universities, people on acting courses, you know, writers. I'm not saying that their their experience isn't is is not necessarily interesting, but um, I suppose I'm interested in the inner lives of, um, as you say, people who work in nail bars and people who are social workers, people who are primary school teachers. And I remember somebody said to me at, at one of the events that I did, um, do you think you'll be able to move beyond these people? Do you think you'll be able to move beyond these people and beyond these Belfast, which is really the sort of palette, I suppose, that I'm using? And I thought that was a, an interesting thing to say, but also a very revealing thing to say, because it sort of presupposes that beyond this particular milieu, there are people with more interesting lives. Um, I mean, I personally feel that you know, looking at people who run nail bars, looking at local hoodlums, looking at, um, you know, a guy who works in a shop in the town. Basically, that's that's a pretty rich human experience in terms of, you know, alienation or in terms of loneliness, in terms of relationships that have gone wrong. You know, 
if if I was able to move beyond this East Belfast, I don't really know what more I would actually be getting. But I suppose there's always the idea that that people who live elsewhere, people who live in, I don't know, maybe you would even say cool, cool places, that their problems are more complex, <laughs> that their life, you know, life's harder, more difficult, more interesting, all the rest of it. And I basically think that's uh, it's not true. I think that's a really revealing statement as well, because I, I wonder if somebody would have said that to a male author, if somebody mm. would have said that to Irvin Welsh or, or uh, Kelman or, um, you know, any of the crime writers who have plumbed hoodlums, you know what I mean, for years. Yeah. I, I think that to me, you know, and again, I don't know how, how deep you want to get into this, but when I, when I was reading the stories, again, I, I'm a big fan of Elena Ferrante's work. I really enjoy that. And, um, you know, it really struck me when I read that for the first time. And, you know, I can't remember. It's been probably a decade since I, I read um, my, uh, uh, my my beautiful friend. Her, her new one is... Her, yeah, I have not picked up her new one yet. But when I, when I read that, um, I remember, you know, thinking that it was really the first time that I'd read a major novel that really talked about, again, people in that social class, but then specifically women in that social class. And, you know, there are obviously a lot of other books about, uh, you know, people throwing snooker balls through windows and, and petty insurance scams and stuff like that. Again, what really grabbed me was you're telling this from a very different point of view, which is the strivers, the people who have a mother who's dating someone who the boyfriend suddenly kisses the daughter, you know what I mean? Things that I don't think certainly male readers would necessarily know about. And certainly I got the impression from this in the way that you talked about the male characters. Um, you know, there were several times when I kind of had a, there was like a little tingle in the back of my head and I said, Oh, you know, the, the, the main character of this story knows that her dad or, you know, her brother or her, or her friend absolutely has no clue what her life is really like. And, and to me, that was a really rewarding and revealing thing. Yeah, that's a lovely. That's a lovely thing to hear. And I suppose you know, I am. Uh, I suppose one of the things I'm interested in is how unknowable we are to to each other, really, at all times, even within a microcosm of a home. You know, that's that story that you're you're picking out there. That um, the one about the. Um, about Kim Castles and the one about the the girl who knows that her friend is having an affair with her with her mom's partner. You know those people are in such close proximity in a home, and yet they just have no idea whatsoever what is happening in in the minds of of each other. And I suppose one of the things I just keep returning to over and over again is just how how unknowable um people are to each other really and you know that's that's interesting that you're saying it from the the perspective that the that the male characters are unaware of the lives of the um of of the women of 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 the female members of the families but i would hope it would also be as well that the men are just almost as unknowable to each other as the as as the women are to the men i think this uh collection Focus a lot on social class as we've been as we've been referencing as we talk. I was thinking more about Lucia Berlin. Her stories. Oh yeah, are, Lucia Berlin. Yeah, mm -hmm. she's she's an American writer. I don't know if you're familiar with her, but at any rate, it, I've always found when I'm reading literature from over on your guys' side, it's way more class focused here. We're in America. We're obsessed with race. Everything is about race, and uh, particularly now with all the 
the things that have been happening here, but did you grow up in a community uh, like this in Belfast, this, this mile radius that you were talking about earlier? Is this, is this your background? I, the reason I ask is, Jamie, Mike, and I, we all come from working class backgrounds, and we're not, get, we're not academics. So that's, um, yeah. and I think that's maybe why there was such a relatability for us. Yeah, well, I suppose I've lived here for about, I've lived in this in this environment for about 20 years. And my family, my grandparents and so on also came from this area. Um, where I actually um, grew up was on the other side of Belfast, which is probably a more, I would say probably a more, a more middle class um, place than, um, than, than this would be. Um, but yeah, I just see so much just through the prism of the prism of class, really. And I mean, the, the story that the collection takes its name from, Sweet Home, I mean, to me, that's a story where, where class is basically central in terms of how the um, of how the characters interact with each other. And that, that story, Sweet Home, was taken from, um, it's basically based pretty much entirely on the Chekhov story, New Villa. Um, which I think is a, a really, really interesting um, examination of how um, of how class operates and how, in some ways, people prefer um, they, they they can nearly get their head round a kind of a a, a sort of a, a harsh master than they can one who so who shows them some sort of um, you know compassion. The person's a mug, the, the master that shows compassion. Wendy, I wanted to get back to uh, what you were saying about unknowability or being unknowable. Mm -hmm. And what I noticed in a lot of the stories was that we we meet the characters, a lot of characters at one point in their lives, and then usually in the middle of the story we'll travel back in their narration to some memory they have or uh, some flashback that the, the third-person narrator is telling mm -hmm. us and we find something out about their past so mm -hmm. not only are parts of us unknowable but depending on which order we find out what facts about you might shape how we view a person or a character and it makes me think of the story near the end 77 pop facts you didn't know about gil courtney mm -hmm. and that that was an interesting one to me um i think there's a lot to talk about there in terms of how you decided to format it um who mm -hmm. the, who the character is um could you could you talk a bit about that story yeah cer certainly I mean that i think that's so so interesting what you say about what i'm trying to do with with people's with people's pasts because i suppose what i'm always trying to do with all of my stories is that i'm trying to run two or three or maybe maybe even more than two or three different timelines um simultaneously and i suppose um the the idea is that often the the present is no more important than what's than what's happened in the past. So I'm trying not at times to privilege the the present timeline. I mean, two people can meet and have a cup of tea, and it's all pretty mundane. But what's significant about the situation is what has happened in the in in the past, maybe between these people, and that's what adds meaning to the present. But also as well, the the idea that we're never just living totally in the present. You know, even now, maybe as you're speaking to me, you're maybe anticipating what you're going to be doing later on in the day or you know things from the past are also impinging on on, on the present moment the, the present action now and um, but yeah this the, the the 77 pop facts one about Gil Courtney is a story really that I just have a a lot of a lot of affection for um what I was trying to do was just um trace the life of someone who some people might regard as a total failure this is a sort of a pop star monkey type you know 
of you know of a kind that there's just so many individuals that you could say fit the bill you know the person of talent the person of ability but for whatever reason whether it was chance or personal circumstances or you know personal frailties um they've ended up not being in inverted commas a a success and so this is a kind of a sort of Sid Barrett style character from East Belfast who has um had a limited amount of success and then basically um returns home again um eventually just to uh to die but what I was trying to explore and that some people have found it like a funny story or a quirky story or I don't know almost maybe a, a sort of a, a novelty story but my what I was trying to examine there really was the whole idea of how important is it that art has a has much of an audience. Um, you know, here's a person that that produced music that was only really accessed by a few people and only absolutely adored and loved by it by a small number. Does that does that you know make what he did? you know, not legitimate, um, you know, that some of the other people who surrounded him thought he would have been better off not bothering whatsoever because um, what did he ever, um, ever achieve? So it's actually what a, the, the album that the guy released, um, fake, fake released, um, Volante Blue, was what I originally wanted to call the, I wanted to call the collection. Um, so I wanted to name it after Gil Courtney's flop album. Um, but then people... <laughs> Um, the publishers were saying it's not really a very sort of it's not a great start um that you're you're going to be oh, naming election after a flop um but that, <laughs> that, those are my thoughts well it's it's funny you mentioned i don't want to get too far afield but um mm-hmm. that that strikes me as a um certainly a metaphor how writers can feel too you know what i mean do you put a book out that's beloved by some and, and unread by many. I mean, I, I don't know how many mid-list authors or authors there are out in the world that release books and, you know, no one ever hears about them. You know what I mean? And then, you know, I mean, obviously the great the, the great fictional example is Kilgore Trout in Veronica's Slaughterhouse-Five, the author that no one's ever heard of and, and Billy Pilgrim meets and it's only because he's picked up a crappy comic book. You know what I mean? I, I think yeah. that you could say that. But what actually struck me about this story, and I, I'd be interested if these guys uh, agreed with me, I found many of the stories to be extremely funny. And I think it is because it reminded me so much of how my relatives talk and how they kind of, um, I, I, there's a word I can't say on the air here, but they kind of cut people down for getting too big for their britches, you know what I mean? Can and, you say P-I-S-S? Yeah, let's not. Okay. They, they, there's, um, there's um, you, you know what I mean? Like, even like in, in the story we were just discussing, you know, there's talking about the property and it's this very dry, to me it's very funny, you know? You know, here's here's a, it's like a property listing I would have read the Dundee Courier and it's somehow very witty because it's just like this place is kind of a crap heap, you know what I mean? Like, that's that's what's implied and yet it's said in a kind of very straight and and almost kind of floral way so that you actually, you actually have to be in on the joke to know that it's funny. And I thought there were a lot of stories in the book that uh, there were there were certain moments and certain points where people would say things. And again, I think it, if you maybe grew up with that, you would realize that what they were doing was being sarcastic or being funny. Um, I'm, I'm curious whether American readers saw that as well or whether I'm, you know, alone in that. Well, in, oh, do you want to go ahead, Wendy? Oh, I thought you were going to say something. Um well, I mean, I guess people have different ideas of what's funny. Like in Sweet Home, that was my favorite story when um, 
when Emma was questioning Bucky if Gavin was a pedo because he was because re- he was reading books to children and the Wendy I used to be a children's librarian and I'm I'm a big guy and I have a lot of tattoos and you know and I've worked in a couple working class neighborhoods and like I would come in and people would kind of be looking at me like why is this big dude reading you know picture books to I thought you were the security guard at the library the first time I walked in yeah, yeah. they people think I'm the security guard you know but that to me was extraordinarily funny and I, I cracked up and, I, and a lot of although it uh there's some tragedy of course in that story I, I thought it was really funny in the way that the the wealthier couple interacts with basically the hired help and, yeah. and they end up yeah. becoming like nannies for them it was um I, I like that dichotomy a lot and and also the idea that you know hey I can trust this guy because he's wealthy with my son and you know I don't want to spoil it for anybody but uh I th- those were the ties I made and I, I saw a lot of humor in that just yeah. just knowing people um, I come from a very working class background and I'm sure a lot of my relatives are like what's he doing you know that's yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're talking about the the dry humor, Jamie, like yeah. you know, like taking people down a peg, I yeah, I I, I caught that quite clearly, <laughs> and I think it's hilarious. I don't know if that's a class thing or not. Um, maybe maybe upper class people are more sensitive and they don't make fun of each other as much. But uh, yeah, I thought that stuff was it was like how you know you talk to your friends. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, was that something you were? You were, I mean, I I thought it had to be intentional. <laughs> you know what I mean? I thought there were some some very funny things in the book. Yeah, I mean, I, su- I suppose um, it, it wasn't that I was really sitting down and, and thinking to myself, okay, so I, I I need to add a few gags here or anything like that. But um, I just genuinely do find I, I I do find life, I suppose you would say, um, reasonably amusing most of the time, um, and so I I I did I did want it to be funny, and I know that some people some people have found it very very funny, and some people haven't found it um, some people haven't found it funny at all. Um, sometimes I've kind of thought that some people have said as well that when they've heard me reading it, they find it they find it funny, um, and that's made me wonder. Um, at times maybe did I need to do more to kind of indicate hey guys this bit's meant to be funny um, because it was coming through in my reading but maybe not necessarily whenever they were reading it them, themselves um, but, I'm, but I'm glad to see that people can find it amusing and it's not something that's sort of uh, I don't know sort of like a local colour literature that only means something to the people that live in this really you know small little you know geographical um, location but I find I find that any book, I find that any book that's not funny at all in any place, I find it kind of quite strange because to to me, you know, humor um, is is going to be as much part of the tapestry of everything as as you know whatever else tragedy, isolation, alienation, whatever. Yeah, and you can't write about a group of people without, I don't think, without having some humor in it. You know that. And, oh, I, yeah. and I think the the type of humor in here would appeal to certain people, and not to others. So I wouldn't I wouldn't worry I about what if people don't get the jokes because yeah. it's probably someone that doesn't have like families like ours, you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, on that note, let's let's play a quick clip from uh, Wendy's new book. Again, we're talking to Wendy Erskine. She's the author of the new story collection Sweet Home. It's out on Picador. Uh, as always, we want to thank our reader Shanna Van Volt, and we want to thank uh, Makai McRaven for providing the music uh, for this. We'll be right back with Wendy after this short clip. You're listening to I-94. This morning, Mo arrived at the same time as usual. 
The butcher next door was putting out his sign, a wooden cutout cow, as Mo put up her metal shutter. Then she went through her routine, kettle on first, switch on the wax pot, light a few of the scented candles, black coconut. He needed to take away the smell of the bleach that lingered from the night before when the whole place had been washed down because ammonia wasn't very ambient. Switch on the heat. Important this, although it was expensive. The place always needed to be warm because people felt awkward enough stripping down to paper pants for a tan, and they didn't need to be freezing as well. The electric heater made a racket, but no one had ever complained. Listen to the answer machine, turn the sign to open, and finally, finally, make the cup of tea. Mo was reaching for the milk when there was a shatter of glass. She came through from the back and saw a hole in the window, a circle about two inches wide, and coming from its silver spokes that were tinkling as they crept further towards the edge of the window. Beside the table with the celeb magazines, a shiny red snooker ball had just come to rest. Mo heard the cracking of the glass, stared down at the ball, and then looked at the window. Through the hole, the road looked darker. She put the ball on the counter and went next door to the butcher's. Did you hear that? Mo said. My window's just been put in. The butcher shook his head, continued moving some meat from one tray to another. Damn, he said. That's not good. Do you need a number for a glass place? Yes, I do, said Mo. I can't believe that just happened. Desperate-like, he said. I can't believe that just happened. A woman came into the shop and he turned his attention away from Mo. Did the what can I get for you, my darling? waiting at the bus stop outside the salon were a handful of people. Did you see what happened? Mo asked them. My window's just been put in. An old fellow shrugged. A boy in a school uniform didn't take out his headphones. Yeah, the man said. Car pulled up and the window went down and they threw something. Drove off quick. Did anyone get hit? Nobody got hit, said Mo. It was just the window that got wrecked. Bad state of affairs, said the man. Nuts. Mo's first client of the day, in for an eyebrow wax and an eyelash tint, never commented on the window. Blue-black? Mo asked. Blue-black, the woman said. She had taken off her shoes to lie on the bed, and they sat neat in the corner, sad little comfortable shoes. Mo mixed in the dye in the glass vial, and then smeared Vaseline over her eyelids and under her eyes, positioned the semicircles of paper under her bottom lashes. That window. Unfair so it was. The woman's eyelids fluttered as the dye went on, cold and wet. That's us, said Mo. I'm going to leave you for ten minutes to let that take. You warm enough? Mo pressed two cotton wool pads on her eyes. Oh, yes, said the woman. Lovely. Good, then, said Mo, and she closed the door on the woman lying blind in the dark. The man from the glass place said he couldn't come out until tomorrow, but Mo supposed that was probably as good as she was going to get. She knew that even with the insurance, this was going to work out expensive one way or another. It wasn't a total surprise it happened. She had been expecting something or other. And shouldn't she be thankful that it wasn't something worse? Good that it had happened when there weren't any clients around. That fellow would call in soon again. She knew it. Welcome back to I-94. That was a clip from Wendy Erskine's new collection of stories, Sweet Home. It is out now on Picador. So just to get back to something that some people would find funny and others not, and I do want to make a disclaimer. This isn't like a goofy ha-ha-ha-ha book, but it's more like dialogue between people that certain groups would find funny and maybe others wouldn't but and um the story last supper when <laughs> when the gentleman that was having sex in the bathroom said that he knew someone that had, had sex in a concentration camp and then the guy that he's talking to is just like 
this is absolutely not the same <laughs> at all whatsoever. Um, that that story made me like crack up and just the whole like as I was reading it, I could see people like I hung out with in high school do that. You oh know? yeah, yeah, and and, it, and and the type of you know cafe that it was. Um, well, they're kids. Yeah, absolutely. I, and so I just I wanted to throw that out there before we get into break, but that. I thought that story was absolutely hilarious. Yeah, it's like, I I don't know how you were describing it when you came in at the break. It's like you have a really funny friend in your group of friends, and you just, that one's always cracking jokes, and it's hilarious. Or doing crazy stuff. Yeah, they're not on stage or anything. That's what reading this book was like. It's like, it's it's just good storytelling. It's not obvious. And, you know, you were talking in the beginning, um, Jamie, about how... uh, certain subjects are are overrepresented and i think one of the reasons that maybe stuff like this you know average joes and joes uh aren't explored as much in literature is because you got to write it really really well yeah <laughs> to I, make it interesting well a lot of the stuff that comes out in america they're like meth heads that live in a trailer you know and it's not everyone is a meth head that lives in a trailer that you know they're not that's like bare bare knuckle fighters or something and yeah. Frank uh, Bill. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. I think that's an interesting point. And you know, Wendy, you kinda of mentioned it as well. We we unfortunately have an over representation of what, you know, we hear on the show kind of call academic literature. You know, a professor, <laughs> you know, seduces a student and then, you know, his life is destroyed. Boo hoo. And you know Our artists it, in Brooklyn, don't yeah, forget. Yeah, artists that. in Brooklyn. That's another horrible genre. Um you know, it's interesting you know, because one of the first things you said, Wendy, was you know you're, you were concentrating basically on two square blocks of, mm-hmm. of a place in in Belfast, and you know I think it's really interesting to take that kind of look at an area and paint the picture of the area. That's something that's not usually done, because so much of our literature I think is focused, unfortunately, on. I want to say the personalities and the idea that a novel has to be like a big story over here. You know, the, the idea of the great American novel, I think, has really polluted a lot of what otherwise might be fine writing. You know, this kind of striving for something. And MFAs. <clears throat> well, the MFA is another curse upon America. But the um, again, what, what really draws me to this book, and, and I think what makes it so recommendable and, and accessible to people, um, is the fact that when you're looking at this, if you actually pay attention... The people in the book are are people that everyone knows, whether they want to acknowledge it or not. You know what I mean? Where mm-hmm. wherever you are, these may be people that are working, as you said, in the nail bar, the chip shop, whatever, and they're people that you probably interact with on a daily basis. But most people don't necessarily give them any kind of notice or the time of day. And I think in America we've gone, as I think Jeremy mentioned, you know, toward the kind of grotesque, you know, let's have a story about um, heroin addicts who end up in, in prison. And you know what I mean? That, and, and there's a place for that. I'm not saying there isn't, you know, uh, you know, and there's been some great literature to come out of Britain, train spotting, you know, uh, comes to mind. But at the same time, there's a whole group of people that are never, ever talked about. And it's, it's very frustrating because it seems that that is such a rich area of, basically the vast majority of people you know the vast majority of people in the world are are lower middle class people that have to go to work uh have to feed a family and 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 have these kind of interactions i think the reason it's like that in america though is you have to have money to go to school and a lot of these novels are coming out of 
literature programs. And, you know, if your mom and dad are working as cashiers and, and doing odd jobs, you're probably not going to go to Columbia and get your MFA. That's, that's you know, that's my, yeah, my that, take on that's it. That's an interesting thing. We do have a bar- we have a barrier to entry here in writing. Is that is that the same case in, in Ireland or in, in the UK right now? Well, I would I would say that in in Ireland there is um, you know there's there's a there's a short story tradition in Ireland, um, so I would I would say that there's there's probably a lot of people writing short stories in terms of um, Irish literature. Um, I think that there there's a lot of people writing in Ireland at, at present, and there's a lot of people um, I think writing really um, successfully in in. Ireland at present, but I think just generally that, you know, back class expectations, it's exactly the same thing, that it's just not going to be, um, for, for many people, um, a, a, a viable option for, for, for some individuals at certain periods of their of their lives. And I mean, somebody like me, I mean, I didn't... Um, I didn't. I didn't start writing until you know I was sort of forty six or so, forty forty seven. Um, I think as well. You there there would be other women um, that are getting published now that would be same sort of profile as me that really didn't start writing until um, they were they were much were much older really much much later in life and it could possibly be that they felt they didn't have anything that they wanted to write about it didn't feel like writing until till then but it could also be because they've been engaged in so many other in so many other things you yeah. know we talked to lucy britch uh, a couple of weeks ago and i think she's in the same category she she was not she was working as a librarian and I, she's younger mm-hmm. than you are but she also just published kind of out of the blue and uh mm-hmm. she was also whimsically friends with George Saunders that, that was really weird yeah strangely friends with George Saunders another great short story writer so that's that's kind of odd um Wendy don't go anywhere we need to take a quick break for station identification okay. and I do want to remind everybody that you are listening to 105.5 FM this is WLPN and this is I-94 when we come back from the break we're going to hear more from Wendy Erskine's Sweet Home it is out now on Picador and we're going to rejoin the author in conversation. We'll be right back. This fall, only on I-94. Gis Jen, Ivan Vladislavich, Wendy Erskine, Lucy Britch, Taya Krulos, David Wyden, Lee Weiner, Jen Craig, and many, many more. Only on London Radio's Books and Literature Show. I-94. Every Sunday and Thursday morning, 11 a.m. And now, back to I-94 on London Radio. The thing about people like her, people like Kim Castles, is that they think they're something special. Cass' mom was ironing a shirt, pinching the sleeve at the shoulder to the cuff to crisp the line. And they're not. She put down the iron, did the other sleeve. Kath wanted to hear more. What way do you mean? Well, her mom said. People like that think the world owes them something, but it owes them nothing at all, and it couldn't give two hoots about their pretty face or the pretty face they used to have. That this was how the world felt about things sounded a source of some satisfaction. Kim Castle was Kath's friend's Lauren's mom. She was always that, Kim Castle's, never just plain Kim. Lauren had to do her own washing. Doesn't take a genius to turn a dial, was what Kim Castle said. One time when Lauren and Kath were in town, Lauren said she needed to buy new beddings. Where would you even get something like that, Kath asked. Loads of places, Lauren said. 
You just haven't a clue. She needed a fitted sheet and had to explain to Kath what a fitted sheet actually was. Chip Chop in town was where they always went for something to eat. They kept each other up to date with the latest capers of the desperados from school. Their different schools where they were the same characters. The aspiring hard man, the girl who was bisexual, no, gay, no, bisexual, the person who was always spreading rumors. One day in the Chip Chop, when school had been exhausted, the talk turned to Kim Castles. There was a crowd of boys that day occupied with downloading porn ringtones to their phone. They kept ringing each other so that they could hear the elaborate crescendo of female gasping. Lauren said that there was a new boyfriend on the scene for her mom. That wasn't anything particularly unusual because Kim Castles has had many boyfriends in the time since Lauren and Kath had been friends. One of them had been an estate agent, another an accountant. Then there was the local footballer. A photo of the two of them at the launch of a pre-mixed vodka drink had been in the paper. She was always out on the town for a meal on Valentine's night with somebody or other. Valentine's night in town, Cass' dad said, was only for mugs hoping to get their end away. Yeah, Lauren said. This new guy's called Stuart. What's he look like, Cass asked. Lauren shrugged. All right, he's just a guy. He's around our place all the time. She closed the lid on her cardboard box of noodles. I'm going to eat the rest of this later. He's a bit younger than some of the others, 26. Cass had said that wasn't really crazy young. Well, nearer my age than hers, Lauren said. She pushed the noodle box on the tray that was sitting on the table. I'm stuffed after these. I can't eat anymore. Maybe let's just go, Cass said, because I've had just about enough of these ringtones. Welcome back once again to I-94. My name is Mr. Jamie Trecker. As always, I am joined by Mr. Jeremy Kitchen. Howdy. And Mr. Michael Sachs. Hello again. And today we are in conversation with the author, Wendy Erskine. She joins us from Belfast, Ireland. Uh, and we're talking about her new short story collection, Sweet Home, which is out now from Picador. Wendy, you mentioned Chekhov earlier. I, I can't yeah. remember which story you were referencing. The villa, I think. Yeah, that's about the Sweet Home, the actual Sweet, sweet Home. Sweet Home. Well, yeah. I, it's funny that that you mentioned that because I I actually looked up a Chekhov story, reading a different one, the uh, Lady and Dog. Yeah, yeah. I looked the Chekhov story, Lady with the Dog. Yeah. And yeah. Um, you know, they're they're, I, I I wouldn't think that you were alluding to uh, to Chekhov's story in yours, you know, other than the title. But the way he writes was is or wrote is. Reminds me a lot of your stories, or the other way around. However, you want to, you know. He's dead. We can give her the yeah. credit. Okay. Yes. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> if I can even have learned just a couple of things from the master, that is that's brilliant. That's great to hear. Yeah. I mean that that lady that lady and dog thing. I love that story, and I think it's such a, it's such a, a it's not a young person's story. You know, all all the meaning is really in what's going to happen after that. They're really only in the start. These two people have had their affair, and you know, it's just what's actually going to what's actually going to happen after the story after the story finishes. And I suppose what I was trying to do was take some of the elements of of um, um, lady with dog, the fact that there's a woman with a dog, and the fact that she has had an affair, which you know, went very badly wrong. Um, and then she's got, you know, obsessed with an under, another individual. She's basically fallen in love with the wrong person twice. Um, and I was just trying to take those elements and, and mix them mix them around a little bit. It's interesting you say that's not a young person's story. And you mentioned before the break that you didn't start really writing until you were older. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's a a fascinating detail. I, I did not know that actually. So, 
Yeah, I suppose. I suppose a lot of. I suppose a lot of the stuff that that I'm writing kind of deals with the idea of um, life being fairly unfair, um, of there being no particular pattern to things. Um, people have aspirations, sure, but they usually come to not very much in my stories and that the only thing really that you can do is sort of basically keep on trucking um that you just need to adopt some sort of a fairly stoical approach and just and just keep on um keep on going really um and so I suppose I ended I ended the collection on the, on the story that had that message the one about the the guy who works in the the shop who just has to basically continue working in the shop at the end regardless of what is of what has happened to him um so suppose i don't think there's too much youthful hope and exuberance um in in any of my uh, in any of my stories sadly well and a lot of times these youthful exuberant stories they don't come across as realistic to me and i'm not saying you know life completely sucks all the time but are you talking about Emily in Paris, the new Netflix hit? <laughs> I, I have not seen Emily in Paris, but it's, um, you know, when you're growing up, you, at least for me, you know, it's like, you know, I'm going to fall in love with someone and get married and happily ever after. And um, like the lady with the dog, I also have bad choices in relationships. And But, you know, I'm okay, like, you know, and people are okay and people live their lives and do their thing. And I think that's a very realistic approach to storytelling especially when we get a little older yeah i also would just add i mean i think that there's also a kind of a dignity in kind of just working and kind of going forward you know there's a kind of acknowledging where you're at well yeah i mean i think you know there's a serenity to that which i think you don't really understand until you get older i mean i've you know i've been divorced you know We've had, you know, obviously all of us have gone through things in our lives. Can't speak for you, Wendy, but, you know, um, you know, the things that happen to you, I think looking back on it, if you're if when you get older, you know, some of the things that you thought would really matter to you turn out not to really matter at all. You know, and I think that's actually one of the real surprises of, of getting older. But here's, here's the oh, that's other, really good to hear. The other thing I like, I, I love, love hearing when writers start late. Because, you know, we, we, I feel like there's this common narrative, like you're, you find what you're supposed to be, what you're good at by the time you're 17, 18, you know, you go to school for it, you go right into it. And then you, you know, you just work your way up from there. And that is not how life has been at all for me. You know, I, I've discovered things about myself that has been very surprising to myself. And that's like one of the real joys of, of life to me and to hear that someone started writing in their, in their 40s and and to read their work and how excellent it is is uh is a really cool story to me yeah well that's really lo- that's really lovely to hear i think i mean the thing is as well that is it, there's also such an element of chance that i ever did any writing at all because what happened i i work full time as a teacher in a in a secondary school so i teach kids sort of 11 to 18 years old and what happened was that i got one in a week off work um, for a year, um, and I thought, right, I should try and do something with this with this afternoon rather than um, you know just sort of sit somewhere and read a magazine or read a read a book and have a coffee or whatever. Although I like all, I like doing that a lot. Um, 
And so it ended up that I saw that there was a course in Dublin, which is about train journey. It's about two two hour train journey from me. Um, and it just coincided this this course with the uh, with the afternoon I had off work. Um, and it just happened to be something that I that I saw on uh, on Facebook. And so I could easily not have seen it. I could easily have thought, oh well, I'll just go and volunteer in a shop somewhere, or I'll you know just just chill in my house, have a coffee, you know, read a book, watch a film. Um, so there was a, a massive element of chance that I really ended up writing anything at all. You know, well, I'm glad that chance panned out because this is a <laughs> great collection. Uh, you know, you were saying you were a teacher, a, a, a elementary teacher. Is the is the story of Barry uh, helping the girl off the off the jungle gym? Is that something that uh, happened in real life, or did you get the idea from that from just looking at the playground or anything? I'm just I'm just wondering. I don't know. What, I suppose um, I, I suppose I, I'd walk past a I'd walk past a um, a really rusty old playground in a park on numerous occasions and I remember just thinking about wonder what sorts of things could happen in there and I kind of imagined what it'd be like how easy it would be to get stuck that's the sort of thing probably <laughs> would happen um how easy it would to get to get it would be to get stuck on some of the on some of the bars and so on so I think that's where that one probably probably came from the the title of that story is the soul has no skin I was I was wondering were you uh were you thinking of any other stories when you came up with that title yeah i was thinking of a quotation from bukowski about the soul is no skin um it just wants to it just wants to it just wants to sing and um that um a hot piece of ass in a brand new cadillac ain't gonna solve a, a thing <laughs> um and so that was what i was i was thinking of there so i wove those i wove those elements in at to that story a little bit the fact that the paint that they're looking for is called Cadillac and um oh. some of those phrases are, are repeated in the story um but yeah so I was thinking very much there about somebody who feels a sense of shame but also somebody who feels very marginalized because of their a, a skin condition that they that they have and so that's I was using that that quotation quite metaphorically in a metaphorical way but also in quite a literal way in terms of the person's actual skin mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it was that, interesting I was thinking of that's wait, a great scene when the 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 detective brings him in the tub of cream and he's like yeah. hey you might want you might want to try this out yeah it was so awkward for everyone involved yeah Oh, I was just going to say it made me think of the title of a, a Wallace short story called The Soul is Not a Smithy, which is a contradiction of, a, of, of another quote. I think it's a Joyce quote in, in one of his novels. But uh, I like it when books talk to each other. I think that's really cool. I liked it with the with the lady and dog title, and uh, I was just curious. The what Are you surprised, actually, by the response the book has gotten? Because it, it did get a lot of remarkable notice and kind of seemed to come out of nowhere. Did that surprise you? <laughs> Yeah, it was absolute. Yeah, it was lovely. It was really so. Yeah, it was surprising. I mean, it started out. It was published originally by Sting and Fly in Dublin, um, and they are a, a really small press. And they would publish. They, they, they publish a magazine, um, it's called the Sting and Fly magazine. And they would also um, publish um, maybe a couple of books a year. And so, yeah, I was really delighted when it was picked up by um, by Picador. Yeah. And it was it was lovely to see that people that people enjoyed it. Um, so yeah, no, it did it did 
it did surprise me. No, it was it was good. Um, and it's lovely to hear as well. I mean, I didn't know. I suppose I wondered if it was going to be something that was just going to appeal to people in a very sort of circumscribed locale or if people would enjoy it in other, in other places. And to hear people in the States liked it is, is just, it's just lovely. And to hear that you find it funny and, you know, that the people didn't seem totally alien. I think that's a, that's a, really, that's a really great thing. I don't know if many people in the States have read it. Maybe it's just you guys, if you will. <laughs> Probably is. It, it, I don't know. It was very relatable to me, but that's, you know, like I said, that's the way it came up. I want to yeah. ask. Uh, I want to ask you about Belfast. Um, I've never been there. I, I do want to go, um, but I, I read it. I saw uh, Will Self, the the English writer, speak mm -hmm. one time, and he said that um, in London, there's the writers are very competitive because it's such mm -hmm. a small culture and. They actually like get in fights and you know well, some of that's will self yeah yeah of course <laughs> and and um i was wondering is the uh is the writing scene in belfast extraordinarily competitive or do you guys help each other out or or is it just all over the place <laughs> well do you know what right i hardly even before lockdown i hardly ever left my house you know i basically just spend my time i go to work i come home i watch videos on youtube I, you know, read things um, and that is basically me. I've never been, you know, really a sort of a total scene style, scene style person. But I think that there, I think there is a good, a good scene in, um, in Belfast. There's a good poetry scene. And I think that, and there's a, there's a brilliant bookshop. There's a, there's a brilliant little independent bookshop, No Alibis, absolutely great, which would be very much the nucleus, I suppose, of the, the kind of, uh, you know, seen such as such as it is. But I suppose with any group of people, you know, it's lovely to be able to say, oh, everybody's so supportive towards each other and, you know, it's all, uh, you know, terribly kind of close and cosy and, and all the rest of it. But that, that entirely depends on who you are. Um, if you're at the centre of it, it probably seems wonderful. Um, if you've got a book published, <laughs> it probably seems like, oh, this is all cool and people come along if I'm doing a reading. But I suppose you could ask another person and they might say they might they might give an entirely uh, entirely different um, answer. I suppose one of the things that I found about it has been really that you know my my day job is very much about a group of people doing things for the benefit of another group of people. So it's it's collaborative and it, it, it's it's you know really quite a it makes you feel quite good. You know, it's a good thing to be doing, really. It's sort of a worthy quality to it, if that doesn't sound sort of too sort of tedious. Um, there's that dimension to it. But I suppose with, with writing, what I've found is that it's so much about the individual um, and it's so much about, in a sense, being in competition with other people. Um, even the idea of prizes and so on. You know, I suppose in a school, if you had a prize for Teacher of the Year, anybody who entered that, people would think they were quite ludicrous i suppose really you know <laughs> it's it's not about that it's about you working with a group of others um whereas then you've got another totally different type of culture that's all prize orientated and you know look at how much money this person got and etc it's a very different type of world and it, it's it's pleasant in some ways but it's different to my day job in many other ways are there any uh, oh sorry jamie are there any great up-and-coming belfast writers you would recommend uh i really like a writer called susie dickie um she's a poet and she's also um got a novel out called tennis lessons and she's uh she's a really good writer yeah hmm. right, we'll you. have to look that up you know it's funny you mentioned that we don't necessarily um see a lot of british literature over here unless it gets picked up by an american house 
Um, mm-hmm. Just because I, you know, I'm an expat, I, I get the TLS and we read it. And mm-hmm. Jeremy, of course, is a librarian, so he picks up books from overseas. But I will say, Sweet Home has got notice over here. It's not just the three of us who have read it. So, oh, really? yes, That's it was really it was cool. widely it was widely and easily available. I can tell you that. I know so. I had read about it, and Jamie had read about it, so we had both read about it. And then I don't know if your publicist told you, but I. Well, we confused with Lucy Bridge, so I, we I, want to I apologize had two, for that. I had two <laughs> publishers from your guys' side of the pond, and I intermixed them, so I was scheduling you guys both at the wrong place. But your, oh. your, uh, your yes. publicist was very patient with yes. me. So. Al, good, cheers to Alice, because you're not Lucy Bridge, though we love Lucy Bridge. You know, oh. Wendy Erskine. And speaking of that, we are running out of time. Wendy, could you just tell us real quickly, if do you have anything else coming up after Sweet Home? Well, I hope to have another short story collection out in 2022. Um, that'll come out again with Stinging Fly in um, Dublin. And we'll just see what else happens with it, really, if it reaches your scores or, you know, if it's just handed round a select group of my friends. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, that'll be good well thank you so much Wendy we really appreciate it I just want to say for all of us here at I-94 for Jeremy for Michael uh, we really appreciate your time and we thank you so much Uh, we always do give the author the last word so we're going to play one final clip from your book once again that book is Sweet Home it's out from Picador and we've been in conversation with the author Wendy Erskine Wendy again thanks so much for spending an afternoon when you could probably be reading a magazine and having a coffee with Uh, us (laughs) thank you it's been my total pleasure I have loved it great Awesome. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. We'll be back next week with more I-94. And Wendy, by the way, congratulations. You are our 100th guest. So you oh, are yes. the yes. centenary guest. So congratulations on a, I guess, a meaningless mark. Yes. <laughs> COVID celebration of nothing. Yes. <laughs> Water. Yeah, cheers. If, when I was younger, anyone asked about my mother, the nonspecific, she's away seemed to suffice on most occasions. It was rare, however, that anyone would ask. But had anyone inquired, would there have been a big stigma attached to having a mother in jail? Probably not. At my school, there were other people with family members who were in jail or out on license. In my year, there was Gary, whose big brother shot somebody outside a snooker hall. And in the year above, there was Mandy G, whose dad beat a wound to death. In all likelihood, there were probably others from the years below, but I didn't know about them. You only tended to know about the older kids. Living with my gran, I watched a lot of soaps and dramas. She always sat in the same seat and smoked. There was a yellow bloom on the ceiling, which I eventually, with some reluctance, painted over. Before each program, my gran would pour herself a whiskey, and when there was a bar scene, she would take a drink because it made her feel that she was there. I'd get a Coke and do the same thing, but I was always still in the living room. Everything in the house smelt of thick smoke. It was deep in my school blazer and couldn't be shifted. The man who was killed by my mother was Tommy Gilmore, an old fellow who had hoped, I presume, to spend the remainder of his days recovering from the work accident which had left him incapacitated. He got a major payout. It was somebody else's carelessness. Those long nights, those longer days, no doubt he looked forward to seeing my mother who called around at first sometimes and then more frequently. She borrowed money and initially maybe he liked it, the attention she gave him, the prancing and twirling about and things she had bought. But then when she never paid anything back and only wanted more and more, and when he in turn threatened to contact the police, she beat him with an object, thought to be a poker, although it was never found. Tommy Gilmore had a stroke during the attack, but it was the head injuries that killed him. My gran would visit her daughter every month. It took the best part of a day to get there and back, an elaborate journey involving a bus, a train, and a bus. 
There was a tray we used to call the Chinese tray because it had pictures of dragons on it. On the days when my grand went off, I was left two sandwiches and two glasses of milk on the Chinese tray and told not to answer the front door under any circumstances whatsoever. My gran always came back hobbling because she wore her good shoes. Twice a year I went with her. It usually coincided with the time when the clocks went back or forward. When we got off the bus, we stopped at a cafe near the train station. Anything you asked for in the cafe, they had always just run out of. But they always let us know this with great regret. That's the last time we're going there, we would say. We would take our custom elsewhere. But we kept on going there because it meant we could continue to see what they had just run out of just this minute. After the various security procedures, we took our seats to wait for the women to enter in a single file. Some faces lit up at the sight of visitors. Others' expressions didn't change. My mother's didn't change. The conversational gambins tended to be familiar, more or less. My mother would begin with a litany of grievances which might have included the conduct of certain prison officers or, just as likely, the unavailability of a particular type of sauce. Then my gran would rattle on about characters from the programs she watched. Although she had a pretty enough face, my mother was paunchy for a woman, at least most of the time. At one point, the prison got refurbed with a new gym and all the latest machines, and when my mother entered the room, we saw a pared-down version, alert and hungry. But by the next time, the cheekbones had gone. The Lester, clearly, was off the gym. There were little things. She always had a tissue. She would twist and weave it through her fingers. She did that at least once during every visit, and I always watched for it happening. She got a few tattoos on her arms, capital letters, something or other. Her hair looked chewed and the style was permanently 80s despite the passing of the years. On one memorable occasion, the two of us sat across the table with exactly the same color of hair. We had used the same lightning spray which promised golden beach blonde but which reliably turned out orange. That went in the bin right when I got home. I-94 is Lumpen Radio's books and literature program, airing every Sunday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Central. This is our 100th episode, and it features Wendy Erskine, author of Sweet Home, Out Now from Picador. The episode originally aired on October 15, 2020. Thanks for all your support over these past four years. I-94 is a Lumpen Radio production, with readings by Shanna Van Bolt, show intro and promo voiced by David Green, music by Laurie Johnson and Bill Bennett from the KPM Archive. For more information on I-94 and for past episodes, visit eye94.org. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com.